this is Fortress on a Hill. Thank you for joining us. I'm Henry. And I'm Danny. We're here to tear apart recent stories about our nation's armed forces and our veterans. We hope you'll take a critical look at what's happening with our military. And we hope you enjoy the show. Now, let's get started. Um, so I wanted to ask you a little bit about the, this is more of a, of an out there question than, than some of the other ones, but I wanted to ask you about the disconnect that we have from war as it, as it relates to your time in the service. You know, the, the, the drone program, there's so many different ways that you can look at it and see how we've totally stepped back from areas of responsibility we used to claim in those ways. You know, in terms of like we even getting a drone strike verified to say that yes, the US military did something in this spot at this time and um, you know, just having that, that concrete information. And again, of course, drones don't, uh, drones don't go home, get drunk and tell their buddies. Um, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a different thing, but, um, one element of it and, it, and this isn't so much on the, on the disconnect, but when you're in, when you're in theater, when you're actually doing combat ops, you don't have very much information in front of you as a person. You get, you know, your daily brief, whatever your, your leaders decide to give you and you see the, the bad things that you see. But as far as what the rest of your unit's doing, what the rest of the AO is doing. You, you, you may not know so much, but in your circumstance, you guys are, are I was going to say blessed, it's certainly not blessed, with a, with a <laughs> dearth of information about what's happening in theater and probably much more specific and vivid information than I would have ever seen back there because it, it, it wouldn't have, it, there would have been no point for me to see it. It didn't affect my mission at all. And so I wonder about that in terms of your, you know, your, your time going home, that was there days and even missions that you weren't involved in where you just heard too much? It was just within, within the skiff, within the, the community of guys you worked with? Um, well, it was funny because the information that I, that was the thing that I liked about this stuff was the fact that you know, I'm not some French monkey like on a ship turning a gear somewhere or like the, you know, the aviation ordnance men like putting the bombs on a plane, like not knowing where they're going or if they're going to be dropped or not. Yeah. Like, my job was to know everything or not everything, but a lot of things. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, and I liked that. I liked that I had this amount of information, you know, when I was first starting, it was, you know, it's like, oh, cool. I get to be a part of this community that you know, I always hear about and, you know, all these things. But yeah, I mean, when you, when you take all that in, um, it's, it can be, it can be stressful. I mean, just the, and I mean, you have to compartmentalize it in some way. I think that's something that we all get good at when we're dealing with stressful things is we put it aside until we can deal with it later or, you know, just suppress it. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I mean, I think, like I said, when I first started getting the, that anxiety and that frustration, I just, that's when I realized was like, okay, I mean, this is starting to affect me and I'm not sure why. And I didn't think maybe it was because of all the things that I had said and seen and, and been a part of and just been around. So it's... I I think the harder thing now is the thing that frustrates me the most as you know you guys have talked about is just that ability of that the the public's awareness of what is going on is just so far removed from those of us who even have a cursory um, example you know or a just a, a cursory awareness of what's going on and that frustrates me more than anything is the fact that nobody, you know, everything is just an abstract concept because they don't have that firsthand experience like they do. And while I don't want to give them that firsthand experience, I do hope that they could look at it and think about it critically as far as what are we doing? Why are we doing it? And what does it mean for us going forward? And what 
like if we could put ourselves in the shoes of the people that we're doing this stuff to, how would we feel? Yeah. And we don't, there's no conversation like that that's going on in any movie theater. No, it's, it's, uh, people, people defended as, you know, we're fighting terrorists, we're protecting the homeland, we're protecting our rights. When, if you examine any of those, those answers, that none of them really pans out as far as real information. Um, no, they're convenient slogans. And they are. People feel good, but they're not real. Like, there's no depth to somebody saying, we're protecting the homeland. I'm like, yeah. okay, well, what the hell does that mean? Yeah, that... And do these people actually constitute a threat to us? You exactly know, exactly we no. can we can we can kill people all day long but but whether or not we have to or if we have to in the way that we do um and i'm not saying that <laughs> there is a have to um <laughs> yeah. you know it, it it does matter you know how you fight war matters because the it's it's the nature of the way things happen not what's actually happening that sticks with people for so long i don't i don't think that it i mean Certainly the killing is horrifying, but depending on how it happens and how you personally attach to that usually pans out to how people feel about it. Because I'm sure there are tons of people that have had your exact job and maybe don't have PTSD. But they, but they also may not have came to these conclusions that you have, and those seem very tied in with who you are. Like my own experience, you know, I, I, can't, I can't put that down. I cannot put, put down the idea of my own culpability and the death and destruction that's happened over there. And it, 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 I, I know what my little slice was, but it was the slice of the million little mosquito bites that have been us being over there. I don't know. That's a great analogy, but. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it's funny. I, I remember, um, I think the moment that I really figured out, like, whoa, um, was a couple of years ago. I, I watched uh, another Jeremy Scale thing. I watched his Dirty Worth documentary. Mm. And the first time I watched it, I, you know, I was taking in the information and I was just kind of the way that I normally feel when I'm looking at uh, foreign policy stuff. I was just like, yeah, this is messed up. Like, oh, this is a, I was just looking at it from a more objective standpoint. Yeah. Um, I mean, I was still passionate about it, but it wasn't personally affecting me. And then, the second time I watched it, when he goes to Anwar Alawati's dad, and he talks to his dad, and he talks about his grandson getting killed two weeks after he did, when here's this 16-year-old kid that had no, he had no, he was not attached to his dad in any way, shape, or form. Yeah. And yet we bombed a fucking cafe that he was in. And he's, you know, and I, I don't know what it was, but I... I just remember sitting there and um, it just hit me. It was like, oh man, like, yeah, okay, I wasn't involved in that specific thing, you know, but just that, like you said, uh, that culpability of like all the things that I had been a part of and this machine that I am adamantly opposed to, but I was a part of it. Yes. You know, and I I remember going uh, to sleep that night and I, my, my fiance, she was my girlfriend at the time, you know, I was there and I just broke down. And I just, I just, like, I just said, I help kill people. And that was the first time it really hit me. Like, shit. <laughs> you know, and I mean, that was, that was a tough thing to get over. Um, and it's, I mean, obviously it's still, it's still a big part of the way that I feel. And I mean, even though I, I know I shouldn't feel like I have a war debt, but I do. And I feel like anybody who feels the way that we do about these kind of things feels like we have to make up for the stuff that we were a part of. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's why I feel, I feel like that's why I kind of put myself too far into this job that I'm in currently because I can't, I, I put too much of myself into it. And uh, because I want to, I feel like I have to make up for it, which is not true. I, it's, it's a false dichotomy, but at the same time, I, I feel like it helps me do my job better. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, you, 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 you feel it to be true more than you think that it's that it's true. Um, yeah. But I, but I think that's part of. Uh, 
I think that's part of an analyzing your life. You know, I, I, my, uh, I got out in 2008, and I did not start having PTSD symptoms until the end of 2011, beginning of 2012. And I think part of that was, you know, you <clears throat> there's a natural slowing down of your life as you leave the military because very few other jobs or lifestyles move as quickly as the military forces you to move. And so there's a there's that, you know, there's the churning down your own personal war machine and you're having parties with with family and you're you know, you're doing the things that you missed out on doing. And it's when life becomes more normal, I think. And you're allowed to really slow down and, it, and you start to go back a little bit because that slowness has allowed you to reflect. But if you, you know, I, I think of guys that, you know, like I'm, I'm a former MP, you know, other MPs getting out and immediately going into law enforcement. And that being such a similar experience, did those fellows ever have a chance to let all that as far as their lives slow down, especially anything that involves dealing with people with violence, anything like that? and, and kind of see what happens. And um, I know older guys, you know, sometimes it doesn't happen until they retire. You know, they, yeah. they work a full career and then all of a sudden, what the fuck did I do? Um, but yeah, I, I don't think that the, you know, I, I, me personally, I don't feel like I have a, a war debt either, an actual one, but I definitely feel that I do. And, you know, the, just, just, just the, the things that I went through. Um, but, but I think it's just about being honest with yourself, being emotionally and intellectually honest about, about your life and about the things you go through. So. And I mean, I, like I talk with my friends who are still in, um, or I mean, I have a couple of friends that just got out. So they're still very much in that, you know, mode. Yeah. Um, but who knows? I mean, who knows where they're going to be in a couple of years. And you know, maybe like, I feel like everybody has that same thing of where it takes a little while to go through yeah but i mean i think about my friends like some of my friends who you know were thought critically about what we were doing and have have gone deeper into it shall i say like mm -hmm. they've they've their jobs are now more ensconced in the community and uh you know with more hands-on stuff and uh that's that is really perplexing to me <laughs> Because I think, wait a minute, like this is how you thought then, and I'm and I from conversations I feel like you still feel that way. Yet you're putting yourself into it more. Yeah. You know, and yeah. I I know that I have the benefit of hindsight because like I've been out for a while, and maybe there's still this. Well, this is what I want to do. You know, we make all kinds of rational rationalizations as to why we do. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, it's it's just really interesting to me that. I have those friends, or even if they didn't stay in the military, you know, they went to work for contracting companies, and now they're a part of the even weirder bureaucracy of of the of the community, which I think is is even more messed up because then you're really you have to buy into the politics a lot more, not buy into them, but you have to be a part of it yeah. more so yeah. than when you're in the military. And yeah, I just I don't I don't know. I mean, I I feel like when I was getting out or when I was first thinking about getting out um, and I was looking at the contract companies because um, why not? I mean, I was like, Hey, you know, at the time I was like, I don't, you know, I didn't really get that. I wanted to stop doing it entirely. So I just was like, let me see what's out there. Because like I said, I, I wanted to get a job that I could use in the civilian world if I wanted to. Yeah. So working at NSA, you know, there's so many contracting companies and they love hiring ex-military people because you know what you're doing. You have a clearance. It's just easy. And they don't have to spend money on training you. <laughs> yep, foot, <laughs> or foot right in the little. door. So, and I, I mean, so many kids, like within, or not just kids, people, like within uh, like a couple of weeks, it'd be like, oh, you know, I see you in uniform. And then a month later, once you're done with the leave, you're in like business casual. And it, it was just crazy. So, but like, I was thinking about it for a while, and my buddy who was in the army, he got out. I'm still here. Um, so, my buddy who was the 35 Foxtrot, which is the, uh, the, army, that's the Army's All Force panelist. Okay. Um, they 
uh, he, he, it was weird. He, he got in three months before me or three months after me and somehow got out six months before me. I don't know how that <laughs> happened, but, uh, he was getting out and he was going to go work for Lockheed and he was like, Hey, you know, you should talk to this guy from Lockheed because they have this job where they just need people with PSSES, with a top secret sensitive compartmented, uh, information clearances. And, so I was like, oh, this is interesting. So I talked to the guy and he was like, yeah, I mean, I have this job and it'd be, you know, it, it's a five-year thing. You would rotate, you'd be in Afghanistan for nine months and then be in D.C. for 12. And you would rotate until your five years was up. Wow. And it would be anywhere from 175 to 225 a year. And which I heard was lowballing because my... <laughs> My buddy in Afghanistan was like, dude, everybody I knew was making at least 250 <laughs> But, but regardless, that was a, that's a shit ton of money. Yeah. And yeah. so I was like, okay, well, I mean, I could be a millionaire in five years, but I also know, like, if I feel this bad now, where am I going to be in five years from now? Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. What kind of, am I going to be an alcoholic? Am I going to be like in some ditch like every morning? <laughs> Like, who knows? And that's not something that I wanted for myself. And so it, uh, it, it's funny because my brother, you know, when I told him that, he was like, oh, I, I have so much respect for you because you made that decision, you know. And I'm like, well, if you had felt the way that I felt, you would have made the same decision because it wasn't about the money for me. It was like, I am doing something that's against my principles and I don't want to do it anymore. Yeah. No, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a point in your life where you say, you know, n never again, not at any price, not at any, in any circumstance, you know, you, you, um, yeah, it just, it just, it becomes, it, it, it can't, it can't co-mingle with your existence anymore. So, but it's really hard to impart that on people that don't have any kind of a similar experience. So, um. So was there any big changes between your move from from the Navy to NSA? Was there any any big, you know, any cultural shifts, anything there that you observed? Well, I mean, the, I mean, I was still part of the Navy when I was working NSA missions. So that was the nice, like, it was so easy. And, and honestly, at these facilities, most of the the brunt analytic work goes to the military and to the contractors mm -hmm. and, uh, and the, the agency people are more kind of in charge. Um, at least that's how it was in the shop that I was in. Okay. Um, so, which I mean, yeah, it's, it's probably different at the headquarters because there's a lot more people, but, um, I mean, most of the time it's the military and the contractors doing the, the real like technical work because we have the expertise to do it. And uh, and it's probably cheaper for them to do that. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. No, service members are expensive. <laughs> um. So, yeah, it was, it was, uh, but it was interesting, like being under, you know, I worked with a bunch of Navy people, but I had um, NSA bosses in that mission. And it's, the thing that I liked about it was that it was more long-term. Um well, I say like in, it was a double-edged sword <laughs> because there's an aspect of um, the fact that you're you're looking at things further out of like what's happening in a couple of years, what's happening, you know, in like 10 years yeah. versus everything in the military side. It's always like operational, like, oh, we're doing this right now or yeah. this is happening. I mean, that's not fair because it's, I like, I feel like all military operations are long periods of doing nothing with like periods of craziness. <laughs> and that's how it is, I feel like, across the board. So, and it definitely, that's how it was with us. It was like most of the time we're monitoring things and then it's like, boom, something happens and we have to react to it. Yeah. Or yeah. we're getting ready to do something and then something is happening. So. That was it. Was interesting on the NSA side where things were much slower versus when I was working Navy side, things were much faster. 
if that makes sense. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I wanted to ask you a little bit more about uh, the job you have right now. Um, yeah. What, um, now you work for Clackamas County Veteran Services? Mm -hmm. Okay. I do. Um, and what all kinds of assistance do you provide to veterans? I mean, my program specifically is a permanent supportive housing program. So basically, I help get people um, into an apartment, and then I give them services that they need afterwards. So I'm basically just trying to get people, and everyone has to be chronically homeless and a disabled. Hmm. So um, that's verified by a doctor or a social worker. And <clears throat> so basically, yeah, I just I'm trying to help them move from that survival mentality into living life again and creating goals for themselves and you know thinking beyond just the next day the next week you know what am i going to eat that you have to do when you're homeless yeah and yeah. it's funny moving from a uh, when i was working in downtown portland um you know there's as you know there's been a huge explosion of the population because of the drastic increases in rent yeah, yeah. where People were telling me, you know, seven years ago, they could rent a one bedroom for seven, like six hundred, seven hundred dollars, and now that same place is twelve hundred or thirteen hundred dollars. Yeah. And you know, people from more wealthy places uh, like the Bay Area or New York or Chicago, they say, "Oh, I would love to pay that much money." And it's it's not about the amount of money; it's about how their ability to pay that yeah. is goes no further because your wages are only going up you know half as much if not less than what the rent is going up. so people can never catch up no and no. it's it's this is happening all over the country like this isn't just happening here it's happening into a lot of mid-sized cities and there's a really good book um called how to kill a city and he talks a lot about that about gentrification's role in destroying cities in creating these situations where uh, people aren't even able to afford to live in the places where they lived just a year before or two years before. And it's, it's been really interesting on this side of things, getting to know all about that. But uh, I feel like with veteran, well, with homeless people in general, there's, <clears throat> there's always a lot of stuff that happens. And I feel like there's always some kind of trauma, not always, but, just the act of being homeless can be really traumatic because when you lose your place of living, your home base, you know, what that's got to be really scary. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So, um, and then you have the folks who have been doing it for a long time. And <clears throat> you may have the folks that, um, the veterans, especially that, you know, were in Vietnam or in the first Gulf War or, you know, in the 70s and 80s, and they didn't they weren't able to take advantage of anything that came out, especially during the eighties. Cause there was a lot of people who were, who weren't active duty because there was a lot of people that just were guard and reserve. Um, you can't get a lot of assistance if you're not activated. Like you, for the VA, you know, you have to have that 180 days of active duty time. Yeah. And for those of us who, who were in for four years, you know, just say, Oh yeah, whatever, 180 days. But, there is so many people who never made it out of boot camp, never made it out of ACE or AIT, and um, or they, you know, got in trouble, or you know, and it's just there's so many different issues. And something that my JAG friend told me the other day, he's a Marine JAG. He told me that if you get one non-judicial punishment, which is a Article 15, if you get one Article 15 your command can recommend you for a general or an other honor, which mm. I didn't know. And I thought that was crazy. I'm like, you're, you're saying because they popped on a UA or they made this mistake, like you can get NJPs for missing a PT test. Yeah. And, yeah. and, and then you're going to say you can deny that person the ability to have the GI bill. Like, no, I don't think that's it. But regardless, it happened. And, so you have these all these different people's circumstances, and so then they can never take advantage of the VA, and then they spend their whole lives, you know, 
trying to fix themselves by themselves. And they may spend, you know, 30 years doing something that maybe they wouldn't have done had they gotten the assistance that they needed. And so it's, it's, I'm grateful to be where I'm at where I can help those folks, but it's also a really interesting example of what preventative measures we can take. Cause I think about a lot what's going to happen with our generation of folks. Like, yeah, I mean, you have people from Vietnam and while that was a crazy time, they were there for like a year or maybe a little, most people were there for about a year, right? So, but what about our generation? Like, when we get into our 50s and 60s, yeah. you have these people who went on six, seven, eight, nine deployments and were basically at war for 20 years. It's, I mean, well, it's probably going to be longer than that. But, you know, when our generation gets to that age, like, what kind of stuff are we going to be facing? Yeah. Like what is yeah. the country going to be facing as far as veterans benefits? And you know, like, I don't think we're thinking about that in the current, uh, in the current world. No, Danny, Danny has, has, um, Danny has a great quote from a little, little piece he did on dannywar.com saying that the, the best way to honor veterans is to create fewer of us. <laughs> yeah. And, I don't. I don't think that. I don't think that that burden, that that idea of the damage done to all these thousands of of Americans that served, is a weight that military leadership carries, or or even you know up to people like Trump. You know, I I, I don't. Uh, Barack Obama, George W. Bush. I don't think any of them. You know that they they, in understanding how much damage they caused by sending troops into into combat but and, and again I, I don't know that that's specifically their job but i agree with danny about it that it you know that the best way to honor veterans is to create fewer of us but when the missions become so nebulous when the you know like you were talking about alaki's grandson you know that that um where was the where was the tactical good in that where was where was the the reason that it happened that it gave us a leg up in another way not just like you mentioned earlier not just the next terrorist not just the next mission but why was the mission before important in the first place and they can't explain that to us because if they tried to their entire argument would fall apart yes exactly and, and exactly that's what blows my mind is that these guys are just kind of i mean i'm not going to sit there and try to assume but I feel like from the actions of, that we've taken and this circle that we've made, uh, just going around and around with the same higher up saying the same thing and yeah. expecting different results, they continue to, uh, they, they don't want to ask those hard questions because they would have to then answer for them. Yes, yes. And, and I love when you guys brought up that, uh, about the Cigar Report, about, um, the Afghan recovery report and just saying that basically, you know, we should have taken a trillion dollars and lit it on fire. Yeah. It would have been better because literally none of the metrics that we started with have, have been accomplished or, and none of them have, have gone any further than for a month or two months. You know, nothing has worked because we haven't changed the situation on the ground for the people. And I feel like if we kept trumpeting that over and over and over again, like those of us who are in this anti-war movement who believe in stopping this foreign intervention, I feel like people would listen to us. And I, I mean, although I hate the fact that we're put on this pedestal as veterans, I, I call it a fetish because it really is, it is like a, a fetish. fetish. And it's, it's this weird thing of us just, Oh, thank you for your service, which I, I know that some people are okay with that, but me personally, I don't like that because I'm not thankful for my service. Like, I am grateful for the experience and for what I did, but like as far as the learning opportunities, but I'm not grateful for being a part of this machine that has pushed us into the place that we're at and continues to do so. Like, I can't, I can't, and also it's, it's not really, it doesn't mean anything. It's just a vague platitude that people say, you know, it's, yeah. it's that like wrote phrase of oh thank you for your service it's, like what does that mean it's merry christmas for veterans that the, <laughs> exactly it, it, no i i uh 
you know, I, I, I can't say that I've ever, I, I've thought about it so many times, but I've never stopped somebody when they've wanted to thank me. I usually kind of think in the back of my mind, yeah. okay, cool, yeah, that, that, you, you want to say thank you. And I, I think part, part of it is that people are so disconnected from the military that they don't know what to do. Well, yeah, and they don't. I mean, the amount of people who are going to the military is smaller than ever before, mm-hmm. and we're going for longer and longer. Yeah. And yeah. so you're trying to go, and like I was saying, you know, with when I was going back to school, you know, I might have been like one veteran out of a thousand people, and I didn't know what I was like. I didn't realize how isolating that was initially, and I just was getting frustrated at the fact that these people like. These People in school are just focused on their lives, and I'm like, there's nobody around who gets what I'm feeling. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. And it's it's hard. I I can't even imagine going to a place like a rural place where that might be the case. Um, you know, at least I was in like a populated area. Yeah. But I'm like, I can't imagine the folks who are by themselves, and they just continue to isolate further and further, and. Uh, it makes, and that, I feel like that's where you know you get to the folks that have to come and be in part of my programs, you know, the pro, or the programs that are available to veterans, yeah. because they never get a support system to really help them through it. Hold on, I'm having a brain fart here for a second. <laughs> um, and I think. Uh, I think the uh, the discussion of moral injury needs to be a strong one that veterans have more often. Um, as as to go with what you mentioned about you know us not acknowledging anything, I had mentioned when we when I um, wrote that article about moral injury that it, it the DoD doesn't acknowledge it. They 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 don't say that it exists in any way, shape, or form. Um, but the VA does. And that's really yeah. weird to, to go on the VA site and to see how much stuff they do with it. And so I, I, I hope that I hope that there's there's some point where those two things can come together. Um, but the, the, the real area that I'd like to help in, the area that I think is going to be most helpful, is with kids. Um, I know that uh, I, I, I'm just in the initial stages of thinking about it, but I would like to be able to go to some of our local high schools and, and talk to them about, about my service. Um, and, and if nothing else, to give them a, a comparison, you know, just to, just to throw out something different that the recruiter, you know, may not give or the people they meet who have served may not give. And that, you know, in, in that kind of situation, service isn't a platitude anymore. It's real. There's a person and they're telling you a story. And I think that it's going to be so powerful because kids are so adaptable at change. You know, once they get into their late 20s or 30s, you know, we're on the course that our life usually takes us very little. It doesn't doesn't usually deviate too much. But in the early years, when we're still trying to figure out what we want to do, it, it really can, can take, take different directions. And I see people arguing online about, you know, that they got into a fight with somebody because they were talking talking somebody out of joining the military and people join the military for their own reasons. I was mm-hmm. since the age of 12 up until when I enlisted, I was damn going to become a soldier. That was my own choice that I had I had taken and based on on my life experience, but um but yeah, I think that's going to be the biggest thing and I also think that's going to be the biggest thing not in simply dissuading people from jo- joining as much, but in letting more people know about it because the energy and enthusiasm that younger people can put into it really, really can drive things. But it has to be something that they can grab onto. They can't, you know, the platitudes don't work anymore. They don't want your bullshit. They want something real. They want to hear real stories about real people and about how they're affecting real people in other parts of the world that we don't account for. The recruiter doesn't show you pictures of, of bombed out sites in Afghanistan and Yemen. You don't, you know, you're not going to see that. Um, so I, I think that, that that could be an area that could be really helpful. But uh, aside from that, yeah, the anti-war movement is, is it's, it's hard to see it getting any steam. Um, however, I always think it's interesting that, you know, you have the kids that go on harp duty or, you know, they, they have that, um, they get to go home and like work home, with Hometown recruiting, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I always thought it was funny 
that they do it right after boot camp or right after A school. And I'm like, you don't know shit about the military yet. No, like, no. You just got in, but you're still like in that mode of like, fuck yeah, I made the right decision. Yes. You know, yes. and that's what they want. Whereas I feel like if they did it the opposite way, where they took those of us who were coming out after four years or eight years or twelve, you know, and being like, Tell me about your experience. I think we would see a very different experience. Yeah. From, we yeah. would hear a very different story. We wouldn't hear so much of that, rah, rah, oh man, this is a great decision. Because you have the benefit of actually having experienced the thing that you're a part of. And I, I always thought that was so strange. I'm like, why is this kid who literally just finished boot camp coming here and telling me how awesome it is? And he has no clue. Like, he, he doesn't know anything yet. No, no, it, it, it's the, it's a perfect, it's the perfect point for, for many recruiters right there, you know, that they, they, they know enough to, to gear people up a bit, to get them, them riled up about it. Um, I know for, um, for my basic training class, it wasn't something that was available to everybody, but it was something that the guys who did better in basic training could earn. So, you know, it's it, like you're, 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 sending the people that you think are the 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 best and therefore the most likely to say oh this was awesome i really really enjoyed it we did this and this and this versus other guys that made it through basic training but they they, they wouldn't have wouldn't quite quite sing with that kind of tune <laughs> i mean and just i just wish that we i feel like they're, they're like like you were saying earlier and tom said um at the in the other one that just you know, there isn't this big anti-war movement. There isn't this big civilian upswell of people that are willing to say, like, this is messed up. I yeah. mean, there are. There are passionate people out there. But there aren't but very many of them. So. No, and I feel like more of the emphasis is coming from us, like from the veterans who are part of the movement. And, uh, I mean, maybe that that's just my experience. But, I don't. I mean, it, it's just not, not being talked about enough. And... I feel like we're doing ourselves a huge disservice. And honestly, I feel like that's kind of what the machine wants. They want us to be complacent and be okay with us continuing to live our lives in blissful ignorance of the fact that we have deployed to 167 countries. Yes, no, that, that, is, that is absolutely their plan. And they want the, they want the information to seem daunting and, and without uh, not being able to be understood by ordinary people. Um, and they want to be able to say that when, when we look at the pictures of bodies of people or bombed out buildings or, um, heck, even the kids that are in cages down in Texas right now, they want to be able to say that we don't see the full picture, that we don't, can't understand. And the reality is, is that it's a human picture. So if you can't take a military operation down to brass tacks and explain exactly how it was helpful and how it wasn't, I'm sorry, I don't want to listen to you. Exactly, because you're hiding. So, and 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 also the the thing the thing that it's it's not certainly not as frustrating to me about all the death and destruction, but about the cognitive dissidence of our military leadership because they have found it acceptable over and over and over through the 17 years to say failure is okay. That failure in a mission is okay, but we're going to keep doing it like like there's a chance that it's going to get better. Now, to me, if I was still in, if I was a, a, an NCO, I, I, I would have a real problem with that. I would have a real problem, especially taking my guys to another part of the world and asking them to do things that had already been tried there. You know, Danny mentions this a lot. You know, he was in Afghanistan in 2011, and it was a horrible, horrible time there. There were 100,000 troops there, and yet we did not change it. We did not fundamentally make anything about it other than, like you said earlier, take a huge fucking pile of money and set it on fire and, and kill a bunch of our people and a bunch of their people, you know, that, yeah. I mean, but if, if, if anything else is just a shitty military pipe dream. <laughs> and disproportionately. So I think we, we often equate, you know, we, well, the media downplays the, the civilian deaths yes. in general because they're not getting the right information, yeah. but on top of that, we, we elevate our own above others. And I think every every country does this, yeah, you know, especially yeah. when you're at war, because it it creates uh, a support. It creates that, oh, man, like, we honor his sacrifice 
and blah, blah, blah. But when if people, I feel like if people were able to see the Afghanis, the Yemenis, the Somalis, the Somalians, the everybody, the, every place that we're doing stuff in, if we could see them as equal as an American life, and then we could realize, oh, wait, like this one American guy died, and then we killed 250 people. Yeah. You know, yeah. like we wouldn't be able to fathom that and we everybody would be pissed off about that. But we dehumanize them and we put them in a box and we say they deserved it and we say they were in proximity to terrorism or whatever. Yes, yes. An, an, you know, an unfortunate <laughs> accident. <laughs> Which is so funny to me because I mean just man <laughs> I I wish I could say this. <laughs> um it's just the the things that we put in reports, you know, and I'm sure you saw this, like you see people and something happens or and someone gets wrong information or they're just afraid and they open up on a group of people on a house and they don't know who's in there or they throw some grenades in there or, you know, somebody asks for some air support in some specific area and they don't know what's over there. They're just freaked out yeah. or they think they heard something. Yeah, and yeah. then afterwards, we go in there and we look at it and we say, oh, okay, this many people died. And so because we think that there was something coming from this area, okay, like we'll just say all these people are insurgents or whatever, the term is, you know, and <laughs> when, when if we, or I mean, and the worst thing is when you have the, the officers who are writing it up. And they're the ones saying, oh, I did this, this, and this. Yeah. You know, I protected my buddies because I threw this grenade in this house, you know, and they say, oh, it was a bunch of insurgents. And really, it was a bunch of women and kids. Yeah. But nobody knows that because that they got to write it up. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, there's a great piece. It's, it's, it's a little old right now uh, by Adam Linehan at Task and Purpose uh, that he's done a, a huge deep investigation over the Haditha killings in Iraq in 2005. And what you're talking about seems to fit right into part of that narrative that these the, the Marines got hit, and understandably so, some of their, I, I, I want to say uh, there was at least one guy that died right there and another guy that died of wounds later, which is a horrifying thing to go through. But instead of falling back and regrouping and, and deciding what the best thing is, they went with their instincts at that time, and their instincts were, just as you said, to go and kill a bunch of innocent civilians. And so if you, you take that, that frame of reference and you multiply it hundreds of times over, over 17 years of doing this, or even if you want to take it back to Vietnam and, and World War II, is that how many people died in those times just as a... As a Adjacent, adjacent to somebody else's horror. You know, we pass, hor pass horrors on to each other just down the line, down the line. And Danny mentioned something. I was editing our, our newest episode today, and uh, Danny mentioned about, you know, we, we, we talk about 9-11, and it is it's certainly a, a, a horrifying thing that happened to our country, and a lot of people that didn't deserve to die died. But we have perpetrated multiple 9-11s, on oh, yeah. different it's parts not of the even world. 10 to 1 no, no, there there is no <laughs> statistical comparison whatsoever to how many people have died on each side, but we're because of our position in the world, we're able to keep doing it and like you said, depending on who writes it up and we're not just talking about, you know, people at the scene now, we're talking about how journalists write it up, how, you know, like the I I know we've done some in-depth stuff on the Niger ambush, how CNN lied you know, as part of that, that whole thing that, and, but because they're doing the accepted narrative, people don't question it, or at least people with enough viewers don't question it. You know, I, I used to have respect for Rachel Maddow. I did as a journalist. Yeah, me too. I have no respect for her anymore because yeah. if, if, if that's what MSNBC is telling her to cover, yeah, I don't, I, I, I liked hearing her conclusions, but as far as the topics, if that's what NBC, NBC is telling her to cover, why does she fucking work there anymore? <laughs> you know, and, and and you go through that and you see of all the different ways that the media manipulates things and tries to hide um, the sins of certain groups and veterans, how veterans are treated and service members as terms of their vision, our missions 
are two of those groups. And, and so the, the, the bullshit never stops. Like you said, if, if it starts in, in country and somebody writes up a report and then it makes it way to the commanders and the commanders deal with it a little differently and then it makes it up to, to combatant command level and it's you know something else and then it makes it to the sec def's desks and, and everybody gets their little two cents on it and everybody gets to decide how much they want to be responsible for. But there's that separation in there between the operations part, the guys who pull the triggers, and the guys who order the triggers to be pulled, and nobody ever becomes responsible. It's like it's, it's just this this thing in the middle. Well, we didn't communicate right, and we dropped the bombs in the wrong spots, and now the people are dead. When the reality is, is that if we did not take warfare to every part of the world, the people wouldn't be dead either. Exactly. So, but 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 again, it is that if someone can't take it down to simple human terms, and and explain to you what actually happened looking at the big enough picture, then I'm sorry, dude, you murdered a bunch of people. What do you want me to say? It, it, there's, there's, you, you can't put it any other ways. Where were these people's weapons? Where was the threat other than your own personal damage? And that, it's, like I said, with the thing in Haditha, it's fucking horrible. You know, I'm not, I'm not saying that losing your comrades or being in a firefight is, is, not, is not a horrifying thing, but when, when do we stop passing the horrors down the line? You so. you were asking uh, when you were at that interview with Tom. You were asking about movies that you, is there any movies that kind of bring up this other side? And actually, I thought the movie about battle for the Battle of Haditha is called Battle for Haditha, and they did a really good job actually of showing both sides of it because they show you the Marine side, but they also show you the insurgent side. Yeah, and the the main insurgent. Is this like many uh, leaders of the insurgency? Was you know the senior military guy from Iraq that when we the debossification happened, he lost his job. Yep. And he's like, okay, well, what the hell do I do now? Yep. And yep. he spent 20 years in the military. He was expecting to get a pension and feel good about himself. Mm -hmm. And then they give him fifty dollars and say bye. Yeah. And and. And he doesn't want to work with Al-Qaeda because Al-Qaeda is fucking crazy. And, but he also doesn't want America there. And he says in there, he says, the Americans created the insurgency because of the demodification process. Yeah. And it's just like, you you don't see a lot of movies that bring that side up. Like the, all of our movies, not all of them, but most of them that are focused on Iraq and Afghanistan are all, oh man, look at all how awesome they are. And, just the normal military movie bullshit. But yeah, yeah. That's why I liked that because it was like, let's bring up this other side and show you why the way things are the way they are, or at least a, a side of it that we don't listen to. Yes, no, I, I, it, it is really hard to find those, and um, I actually haven't seen that one. I'm gonna add it to my list now. Um, but it, 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 for me, watching a military movie is a is a commitment because. <laughs> If what it, whatever happens in the movie brings up your own personal stuff, it can be a really hard thing to deal with. But you really don't know until you watch the movie. And of course, you know, sometimes it's a it's a point of conversation between veterans. You know, what did you think about this movie? And um, so oh. I, um, but I will definitely I'll add that one to my list. Yeah, I, uh, I'm, I'm sure you heard Danny and I cuss about Black Hawk Down and a <laughs> little, little bit about uh, Zero Dark Thirty. Um, and, the, one, uh, the one thing I liked about Zero Dark Thirty was, so, you know, they show you the black site, and they're showing you all the crazy stuff, and they're like, oh, man, look at this enhancing interrogation techniques and crap. But what gets him to actually talk when they were sitting down and they had a mirror? Yep. And I was like, that is what we need to focus on, because yep. that works. Like, talking to people and treating them like a human being, what a concept. And, and, and trying to mesh ourselves some way in their culture as opposed to expecting and demanding that they mesh themselves to ours um you know iraqis are, are very they're they're generally very hospitable people they uh, when people are on the hajj on the long pilgrimage to to mecca they um you know they'll give people water give people food maybe even let them sleep in their home um and uh, breaking bread with them is, is really a big thing. I remember the, I, I didn't get to participate in the meal. I was doing security outside. Um, but I remember we went to a, uh, I think it was our, the police chief of our town's home. 
and and had and had dinner with them, and they brought it out, and it was chicken. It was delicious. I I, I ate it right there when I was in the turret. Um, but those are the things that help us create dialogue, and dialogue is the only way that we get forward. Death death is its own form of communication. Death and warfare. But if you're not actually communicating on a wavelength people understand, like within their own culture, nothing gets talked about. It's just it's just death for death's sake. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, brother, I, uh, I I I think you and I have uh, have 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 done our good service here today, uh, <laughs> chatting about your service. I'm I'm uh, thank you so much for for coming on and doing that with me, um, and uh, just just given how varied your experience has been. Um, I'm certain we'll probably have you on again to to speak about different stuff that you've been uh, uh, that you've gone through. Uh, would would you be down for that? Absolutely, I I appreciate the offer. All right, well, uh, guys, thank you for uh, uh, listening today, and uh, we'll see you next time. Thank you for joining us today. Please come join the conversation at www.fortressonahill.com. You can also find us on Twitter at Fortress on a Hill or on Facebook at www.facebook.com forward slash Fortress on a Hill. We want to hear from our listeners about the topics and issues pertinent to America's military and veteran communities. And last but certainly not least, analyze your news and its sources very closely. Verify everything you read, and remember that no one, no matter how powerful, are above criticism, especially those with the power to send others into harm's way. We'll see you next time.